You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Our first guest this week on Milk Street is Naomi Duguid. She's a food writer and culinary anthropologist. Her new book is Taste of Persia, an exploration of not only Iran, but also Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Kurdistan. We also get a visit this week from Fuchsia Dunlop. She's an expert on Chinese cooking, who visited Milk Street to give me a lesson in how to use a Chinese cleaver and also to talk about her new book, Land of Fish and Rice, Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China. Here's Fuchsia. Chinese people, in my experience, often come out with sweeping generalizations about Western food. So the typical one is xi tan hen jian dan hen dan diao. It's very simple and monotonous. And it's like, it sounds ridiculous. You know, how can someone say that the whole food of the Western world is simple and monotonous? But it's certainly true that it's very hard to match the, the variety of even a fairly middle-ranking Chinese meal when you have so many dishes and textures and ingredients. Right now, it's time to chat with Raina Chaveri at Milk Street about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Thank you. Now, you know this week we're going to talk about one of my pet peeves, which is sautéing meat for a stew. You know, you have two or three pounds of meat. It takes 25 minutes. You have fat splattered all over your cooktop. Your house smells. And it's just, it's, you have to do it in two or three batches. And the other question I always had was, you know, do you need more meat flavor? Well, you already have two or three pounds of meat. You don't, you don't need to have more umami in the pot. So this week we have an answer to that question, which is a different way of doing stew. That's right, Chris. We have a much simpler, easier, and I'd say a much more flavorful way of doing meat stew. It drops the Maillard reaction entirely. We don't need the browning, we don't need the spatter, we don't need the mess, and we don't need the extra time. What we're doing is looking to other cultures. For example, uh, in Belgium, they have uh, a dish called the hot pot, or in Austria, they have truffle spits. And we are actually looking to a Yemeni dish called marak to make our new stew. This is actually an old method. It drops the browning entirely, and we're using a mix of beans and aromatic vegetables with lamb or beef, and warm spices and lots and lots of herbs. So this meat goes into, does it go into stock or does it go into water? The great news is you don't even need stock. The meat is actually going straight into water. But the difference that we're doing here is using techniques that layer the flavor. So we get a lot of complex flavors without all the work. So what do you mean? Spices, for example? We're using a mix of warm spices, paprika, cumin, cardamom, cinnamon, all of that good stuff that gets rubbed onto the meat and as well gets thrown into the pot. We're also using garlic. So, I mean, garlic, great, except that you have that aftertaste, it's bitter, it overpowers everything. So are you mincing it or what are you doing? So what we're doing with the garlic here is throwing an entire head of garlic straight into the stew. All we do is chop the top bit off and then the whole thing goes right in. And when the stew is done, we just fish that bit out and squeeze the clothes straight out of the 
garlic head into the stew. So we have spices, we have lamb or beef, we have chickpeas, we have carrots. So you know, it's an hour and a half or so, as I remember. Th- then what? How do you finish it? So Chris, at the end, we add yet another layer of flavor and color. We add some baby spinach, we add fresh cilantro, and we have in there also some lemon juice to add a little bit of tang. And last of all, we really love serving this with yogurt. So just to summarize, instead of everything tasting like meat and everything the same texture, Mm -hmm. you end up with like 10 different flavors, right? You have the different vegetables, the beans, the spinach, the Mm -hmm. cilantro, the herbs, the yogurt. So you end up with individual flavors, not just one big melting pot, right? That's right. It's all in one pot, but tons of flavor, tons of layers. Really interesting stew. Raina, this is my new go-to stew. I'm going to make it at least once a week. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. You can find our recipe for no-sear lamb and chickpea stew on our website, milkstreetradio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Sarah, remember recently we got that call about frothing milk? Yes, I do. And and the woman said occasionally it works and then sometimes it doesn't. And you and I made up a lot of silly answers. (laughs) Uh, But we we got an email from a guy. We wouldn't do that. Well, yeah, we we tried. Uh, We got an email from a guy called Bob who actually did have an answer about frothing and why it works and why it doesn't. So... Let's give Bob a call. I'm really glad to know. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you this morning? That's uh, good. Chris and Sarah's here with me. And that call recently where we actually did a pretty Fumbled. lousy job of answering the question about frothing <laughs> milk, and you emailed us and said well, you actually knew something about it, so we decided yeah. to call you so, back. So, shoot, explain it yeah. to us. What makes for good frothing? High-quality uh, protein and low percentage of fat. I would have thought the exact opposite. You know that? Yeah. It's the protein molecules that actually form the walls of the foam cell. And if those proteins are not in good shape, for example, the milk is old, as milk ages, the proteins begin to fall apart or denature, or uh, there's not a lot of protein to begin with, you're not going to get good foaming. Moreover, the fat will interfere with the linking of those proteins. So, for example, you try to foam uh, heavy cream for a coffee with steam, and uh, it foams very poorly. You can enhance that a little bit by adding some milk powder, which is mostly protein. But on its own, it's not going to foam very well. So what do you recommend, a 2% milk for foaming? That's the standard. Um, in fact, when you you know visit uh, coffee bars and... Uh, most will recommend 2%. Now, as I remember, the caller, though, said sometimes she buys a carton of milk and it foams really well, and then other times she buys another carton of milk, and these are both just bought from the supermarket. Right. So is your answer that maybe the milk's a little older? Older. Yeah, it's really hard to know exactly how old milk is when you buy it. Uh, The expiration date is only an indication of how long it's been on the shelf. Also, you can't really be sure how the milk has been stored. Oh, from that's the, a good point. Sometimes it yeah. might have sat out a little bit. Precisely. Yeah, it, it's it, like it, butter. If it sits and gets warm, it can break down a it's little d- bit. Yeah, you know? its qualities oh, can go down. It's so interesting because it's the opposite when everything's cold. You want the high fat and you want it to be cream and you, you know, that's what whips up and gives you volume. You couldn't do that with 1% or 2%. Exactly, because, and, and here's the thing, with whipped cream, you are able to foam it because the butter fat 
stays in a solid form. Now, if you were to warm that heavy cream up... It melts. The butterfat melts, and now you have a heck of a time getting it to foam. Well, Bob, that's great. Thank you. Bob, you've uh, you've saved us. Thank you. Well, it's an honor. I love your show, and uh, I've been a fan of your work for a very long time, Chris, and you too, Sarah. Oh, thank you. And I I think we, Sarah, you and I have something in common. I used to teach at the Culinary Institute. Oh, my alma mater. But not when I was there, I don't think. No, no, no. Back in 1932. Yeah, before the the Earth's crust cooled. Um, (laughs) Well, Bob, you're you're on our our permanent pinch hitter list. Yeah, watch out. I see red phone possibilities here, don't you? Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Take care. All right, take care. All righty. All right, bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. And who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Liz Bingham. Hey, Liz. What is your question for us today? Well, my question stems from a cooking class, and this lady demonstrated that we should be washing our rice. And I started doing that, and I've been doing that for some time, and then I wondered, like, do other people really do this, or am I just... (laughs) Well, what I wanted to ask you to begin with is, who was teaching the class, and what nationality were they? A Korean woman, uh-huh. and it was just all Asian-inspired dishes that she was creating that day, but that's how she started the class. Okay. All right. Chris, do you want to take this one, or do you want me to? Go ahead. First of all, it's very traditional in Asian cuisine, but this comes from for two reasons. One is there, yeah, there used to be, like, you know, little bits of things maybe in there, or chaff, or whatever. Also, the second reason would be that it would remove some of that surface starch or starch dust. If you have a whole big bag of rice, it rubs against itself and produces more starch. So you might want to get rid of some of that so you get the separate beautiful grains. Domestic rice, I'm not sure you really do need to rinse it. Chris, what do you think about Well, no, there is one thing I do know, which is if you rinse rice— and then you go to the standard, let's say, one and a half cups of water per one cup of rice, you mm-hmm. know, the three to two ratio. Right. That's going to mess it up because there's a lot of water still on the rice. Mm-hmm. So if you have a ratio of water to rice, if you rinse or don't rinse, it's going to change that. There's a lot of water on that rice. If you have a cup or two of rice that's rinsed, so it's going to mess up that formula. So I don't rinse rice for standard, you know, domestic rice just as a side dish. But I know in Thailand or a lot of other recipes, they always Indian rinse it. Cuisine, so yes. if it says to rinse rice, then you need R- to rinse, rinse the, the rice, rice because the amount of additional water you need will be different. You have to follow the directions if it says to rinse. Okay. Was that declarative enough? That was very declarative. Yeah. And now I have a dirty little secret to share. I am rice impaired. And it may be because I have an electric stove. So I can never get the temperature Sarah, right. Sarah, you have wait a minute, you have an electric I'm not zoned for gas. I'm in New York uh, City, Chris. Uh, anyway, so guess how I cook my rice. In a rice I, cooker. I boil it like pasta. Don't tell anybody. Anyway. S- Sarah has been outed. I at have. Milk Street well, I, I outed myself. So, Liz, what kind of rice are you buying? It's just domestic, regular, plain old long grain rice. You don't have to rinse it. So you like how you make your rice? You like the way it tastes? I do. It seems a little bit smoother. The rice doesn't seem quite as sticky. Um, I like that, you know, every once in a while when I'm washing a little bit of chaff, that will, you know, float to the surface, just moving the rice around just to get it rinsed. This is zen in the art of cooking rice. It's just <laughs> the gestalt of rice. The only thing I would suggest is, I don't rinse, but... I use a teaspoon or two of just vegetable oil with the rice, and I quickly saute it for a minute in the pan, sort of peel-off method. Yeah. And I find that keeps the grains really separate. That's a nice idea. Yeah. 
But the, if you like to rinse and it turns out well, fine. Yeah. I think if you like what you're doing and you're happy with what you're doing, you should keep doing it. And don't listen to Sarah about rice because she boils. Because <laughs> <laughs> I boil I listen to you about everything else, but not about No, no. Rice. Well, I did research. I mean, okay. I, I know. But at any rate, Liz, thank you Liz, so much thanks for, for calling. calling. Yeah. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, we speak with Naomi Duguid. She's author of Taste of Persia. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is 
kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now it's time to talk with Naomi Duguid. She's a food writer, a photographer, and cook. She's also a culinary anthropologist. Her new book, Taste of Persia, Cooks Travels Through Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Iran, and Kurdistan, was released in September. Okay, stupid question number one, what is Persia? Remind us geographically of Persia. You know, Persia is, Persia is, a, is an idea, is a historical idea, but the place I refer to as Persia is roughly what we today call Iran. The, the name formally changed in the 30s. But I, I like the name Persia better. It doesn't carry perhaps some of the load that Iran still carries with you know, modern-day politics and discussion. And it's also, it's also a culture. You know, we think about Persian rugs. Uh, we can think about Persian music. It, it's, it's a culture that goes way back to well, Alexander the Great conquered the Persians, you know, gives you an idea, a long time ago. So I like the way it resonates. You, you, you seem to specialize in political hotspots for the American public. Uh, I don't know if it's, I, I guess you could say hotspots. For me, you know, food is my entry point into, into place and culture. And you could say that's the lazy person's way because there's other things we don't have to do every day, but, but food we do engage with every day in some way. So if I'm somewhere new to me, even without language, food becomes the language of entry. And if I'm interested, as I am, in, in making places that are either far away culturally or remote politically or maybe labeled, you know, the bad guys or something uh, to people, if I want to engage with those places and make the humanity that's there more apparent, Food's my way of doing that. And I I just like to think about the fact that, um, well, until very recently in Canada, we had a government that um, I certainly didn't like and many people didn't like. And I would say to people who would say, why are you going to Iran? I'd say, well, do you, to a, say to a Canadian, do you want people to think of you as our government? <laughs> you know, and they'd look appalled and say, no, 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 of course not. I'd say, well, okay. So, Imagine 80 million people in Iran. They don't want to be thought of as, you know, uh, imprisoned by the Ayatollahs or following the Ayatollahs. They, they want to have their independent culture and their fabulous films and their books and their incredible food culture appreciated. They're, they're human beings just like you and me. Now, I was talking to a couple of years ago, Paula Wolfer, about when she was in Morocco early on in the 70s. Yeah. And it wasn't that easy. You talk about 
you know, everyone speaks the language of food and it's a way into a new culture, even if you don't speak the language. And she was saying, yes, that's true. But there were many times when she would be in a situation where she wanted someone to show her a recipe and they weren't really that thrilled with sharing the recipe with an American or in your case, a Canadian. Is it, is it easy to do? And do you actually have a technique for doing it? Oh, you know, I, I, of course, the, the snappo answer is, that would be telling, Chris. But no, it's... it's <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> no, it's, why we're doing this show. <laughs> that's why we're doing this show. Uh, uh, instruction number one. No, it's... it's um, what I do, I mean, uh, I think Paula's technique was a little bit different because she was looking for recipes and asking for recipes. And I never ask for recipes. So that's the start. So I don't go as a petitioner, and I don't go with a list at all. Um, I, I go as a curious person, and I don't go as a journalist either. This is a list of negatives. No, but I, I, I go sort of hoping to get lucky. <laughs> and, and so I eat, you know, a lot and frequently, and, um, and I have encounters with people, and I don't ever want to want anything from them. So I just want to be hmm. present and vulnerable. It sort of a, seems to be true that if you're needy, you're unappealing. <laughs> so yes, I've noticed jo- that. You know, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, it's a un, un, it's a you know. It's so so I'm not. I don't want to be needy. I just want to be present. And if I'm present and I like talking to people, I'm always curious. And you know, and and people ask me, you know, where I'm from, and you know, all of those usual questions. And we have a conversation with or without much language in common. Let's switch topics and go to the food. What are some of the dishes that clearly indicate a totally different way of thinking about cooking? So I, I want to talk about it per, uh, sort of as the Persian culinary region because I really, you know, there's dishes that are distinctively, you know, Iranian Persian. And there's dishes that are, you know, Armenian, Georgian, whatever. But they they also share a bit of a language of not just ingredients, but sort of an approach. So there's some overlap. The rice is a, is like basmati. I mean, uh, and Persians will say to you, well, basmati is a really poor third best version of what our best rice is. But, you know, if that's all you have, okay, use basmati <laughs> to make our food, you know. And there's a texture that sort of separated grains. So rice is treated with respect and is is what you serve a guest. Bread is food in the sense of you hardly think about it. Bread is just that basic necessity. It's almost like having a plate, you know, of course bread. But if we're going to talk about cooking, we're going to talk about rice and then, you know, kebabs, complex, wonderful vegetable dishes. And what there is that, that, that is not sort of common to us is layers of green. So in the the, I call them green soups. The, the Persian word is ash. Uh, they're like a thick soup, almost like a stew. There's layers of, it could be chopped leek and chopped spinach and lots of different herbs. And the combination of all of them gives you this subtle range. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And then there might be a little bit of a lamb meatball or something cooked in it at the end. But really all the flavor is coming from plant life, and a few legumes. And so there's this, these subtle gradations of, you know, related flavors, and somehow they all work together to do that whole cliche thing, which is greater than the sum of the parts. Let's take 
eggplant. Ah. Um, <laughs> it's something Why not? that in America, <laughs> it's just one of those yeah. things we never cook, nor do we know how to cook. Yet through the Middle East and obviously all sorts of related places, it's used in all sorts of interesting ways. So how is it used and what does it show about the local food culture? So eggplant is a, is a wonderful uh, meaty vegetable, and that's how people use it. It's a, it's a substantial vegetable, and I just, I'm going to digress. I'm, I keep in mind eggplant, but remember that in Armenia and Georgia, in my, this Persian culinary region I'm writing about, the religion is Orthodox Christianity. And in, in the Orthodox churches, there are fasting days, you know, for example, before Easter and so on. Fasting in that situation doesn't mean not eating. It means not eating any animal product, no dairy, no eggs, hmm. uh, no, uh, often no fish, with the odd exception, and certainly, of course, no meat. So there's all kinds of ways. So mushrooms and eggplant and so on become even more important because there's a whole repertoire of dishes that are not about doing without. They're just those dishes that you eat on those days or in those periods, right? So back to eggplant. One of the times I was, uh, I met some guys, I was in Shiraz, and these young guys were talking to me. And uh, one of them said, my mother just phoned and I told her that we'd met you and she invites you to lunch. And I said, thank you, I I'm happy to come. And so we got to her apartment, their apartment. She showed me a wonderful dish of grilled eggplant. So she had a gas stovetop and she just grilled the eggplant on the gas flame. And the eggplant was not a big, 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 fat Mediterranean one. It was a sort of, it was sort of medium-sized. And she just grilled it until it was, you know, uh, collapsed rather than putting it in an oven and then took the flesh, which was all tender and soft and aromatic. And then she took a whole lot of pomegranate seeds out of a pomegranate and, uh, you know, a little bit of salt, a little this and that, a little garlic, I think. And it was just the most delicious cross between a vegetable mm. dish and a pate and completely wonderful and it really took no time at all and, and so that texture of eggplant like baba ganoush yeah. or this is actually even softer is not something we appreciate but in in chinese culture they like chewy and gristly for yes example. right it, 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 tell me about texture in this area of the world oh that's a really good question there's a lot of uh, people use uh small cucumbers you know i Sometimes you can call them Mediterranean cucumbers, or I've heard them labeled Lebanese cucumbers. You know, they're small. They're maybe five inches long, cucumbers. Mm -hmm. I, I think I first ran into them in Israel, actually. They're just wonderful. And they're now available, much more available in North America. But you can use one of the sort of European or English cucumbers instead. And people use cucumber as a crunch texture. So if we were talking about, I said there, we might, there might be a plate of fresh herbs, one or more out on the table to use as like a seasoning as you eat. They would also maybe have some spears of cucumber. So that crunch, because they might have a soft soup and then maybe a, um, a flatbread that's maybe a little bit chewy and then this fresh crunch. So always this reminder of the fresh and mm. the uncooked. Uh, what are some of the ingredients we're not familiar with and how do they use them? There's very little that is unfamiliar to people. You know, it's, it's very friendly for the cook. So the things that are less familiar are pomegranate molasses, which is something that, you know, Paula Wolfert, for example, 
has written about for a long time, and I've written about it and other people too, and it's now more available. I made fun of pomegranate molasses. Oh, did you? For 20 years. Yeah, no. It, and, yeah. and about seven or eight years ago, I bought some and, then, and I used it. And every now you week. have it all the time. Exactly. It's, so here's, yes. I, here's the thing that's not in the book because it's, it's, a, it's my newest, latest shortcut for grilling. If you have a, a piece of, uh, you know, flank steak or something and you want to just marinate it quickly and put it on the grill, if you use my usual marinade, which is fish sauce and black pepper, and you add pomegranate molasses to that, and you smear the two of them on it, just a thin bit, and then you let it sit for half an hour, and then you put it on the grill, you just won't believe how delicious it is. There you have it. That's my my, t- my gift to you today. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years about people like us, I guess, going into other cultures and talking about other people's food in the sense that, you know, it's their food, it's not our food. Uh, you know, how come we should have the right to go talk about it and write about it? Um, I have a very strong opinion about that, but but what, what say you about that? <laughs> so the question is really of one of cultural appropriation. And right. I view myself as uh, never an expert at all, but instead as a sort of transmitter and also as a contextualizer. I want to use food as a way of helping people, let's say, here, no, the notional here, North America, appreciate and have a, an empathetic connection to people in a place that they might not have considered as a, you know, a real place or a human place. So food helps them inhabit it empathetically. I would not have written a book about Persian food on its own. I'm not from Iran. I'm not Persian. But it seems to me completely legitimate to come as an outsider to the whole region and cross-relate cuisines that are outsiders to each other and cross-connect them. Uh, you, you talk about war and change uh, in culture leading to more hospitality rather than less. Is that, do you think that's true? I don't know if experience? it leads to more. I just find it astonishing that people who have been uh, those guys in Azerbaijan, for example, and other places too, people who have been in stressed situations and, you know, they have real entitlement to be mistrustful of the stranger and, you know, cling tight to what they have because they, they've been stripped of a lot of things, that those people are often the ones who are just instinctively most generous in a way that almost shocking, that generosity. But I think there it's just of course you offer, you feed the stranger. You've been invited into someone's house and you're being given food and you don't want it to be a transaction. You don't, you're not paying them because that would be, they would be offended. So what do you do? Well, you just have to figure out how to be graceful and appreciative. And it's sometimes a hard role, you know, because you realize you're in their debt in a way. Um, I, I've always wondered about this. Are there any food cultures that don't have an obvious direct connection to the land. That is, you always think about food and land going together in the culture, and it's always in sync. Have you come across any places where the way they cook food and what they eat and how they eat it doesn't quite add up to where they're living, or is it always in perfect harmony? Well, I would just say, you know, a lot of North America, if we're thinking about it analytically, because if people have, you have to do something sustainable if you're going to survive. Right. So, so I think mostly 
if it's something that doesn't make sense to my eye, you know, like, whoa, this seems out of sync, then it's generally I, my assumption is going to be I'm missing. I, it's my failure to understand, if you know what I'm saying. In Burma, for example, foreigners often say, oh, gosh, Burmese food, there's all that oil. And you think, wait a minute, I'm in a poor country. Why is there oil? Right? Why is there oil? On, I mean, oil's valuable. It's valuable calories. And you, in Burma, people eat at lunchtime. That's the big meal. And the food is often set out like at a bus stand or anywhere in a restaurant in sort of almost like heated trays, but they're not heated, steam trays. They're, it's put out, and then people, you point at what you want, and you get served. And, of course, the oil isn't wasted. It's because people don't have refrigeration. It's because it seals it off. And it prevents oh. contamination huh. of the meat underneath, right? So anytime something seems at odds, it's because it's I didn't understand. And then, oh, I see now. Uh, that's the reason. You've traveled a great deal over many, many years. Is there one moment you were invited into a world that you didn't expect? I think, I think it happens. It just happens a lot, you know, I'm wandering in a village in the mountains of Armenia and I see an old woman in an orchard and she and her husband invite me in and they set the, the plate out carefully and the, and the apple and carefully cut it and peel it and set it out for me and then we sit and we sip tea together. That's just magical. You know, we don't have a language, but we're so appreciating that, that moment. They're appreciating that they've got an apple to give me and we just sit they might show me treasures or uh, they might bring somebody young in to translate a bit there's just this feeling of this is a it's a huge world but we can you know hands across the sea across a table that's what i have to say That was Naomi Duguid. She's a food writer, photographer, and cook. You know, Naomi sees the world in a very new way. She calls it hands across the table. Every day, all around the world, cooks have to put food on the table. It's a very big table, but there is a seat for everyone. And we all speak the same language, the language of food and cooking. As Adam Gopnik, one of our regular contributors, liked to say, the table comes first. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk about ethical eating with New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am fine, Christopher. How are you? I'm great. What is on your mind this week? Chris, I'll be honest with you. I have something a little more serious than our usual um, larksome and facetious inquiries into the imaginative life of food to talk about. I just got the 10th anniversary edition of Michael Pollan's remarkable book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And one of the things that it made me think about again is the basic, unstoppable, never-ending arguments about sustainability, pleasure, and health. Beyond everything else, the real question that haunts anybody who takes eating seriously in the beginning of the 21st century is, what are the real ethics of eating? Pollan, of course, raised that question, and he raised it in terms of how we grow our food, how we slaughter our animals, how far our food has to travel to come to us, the ills and ravages of monocultural farming, and on and on and on. In response to that, there's been a kind of kickback 
that insist that those concerns are in some real way frivolous, that no matter how much propaganda we make for the local, no matter how much you and I fell about green markets in Pollan's own way, those things still occupy a perilously tiny proportion of the food world that we delude ourselves if we imagine that they are more significant than they actually are, and that the real ethical problem of questions of food at the beginning of the 21st century has nothing to do with whether our carrot was grown 10 miles away or 10,000 miles away, but with how we're going to feed an ever larger human population. And that back and forth, I think, has been one that nobody who cares about the philosophy of food can really ignore. It's one that I tried to address, I think, in a largely confounding way in my own book about the philosophy of eating, The Table Comes First. But it's one I wanted to come back to again, because I think that it's still one that we haven't fully reconciled or gone into the depths of. Do you mind if I try and offer my view once again? This is deep water. Go right ahead. Here's what I think we're likely to miss when we're having these arguments. It's perfectly true, as Pollan and so many others have shown us, that the economics of contemporary food production are unsustainable. My dear friend and one of the finest chefs and restaurant keepers in all of America, Dan Barber, of course, wrote his brilliant book, The Third Plate, on this subject, in which he showed that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, that our current food system simply isn't sustainable. Against that comes a very strong form of free market argument that says that the truths about localism alone, for instance, are infinitely more complicated than our simple virtuous picture suggests. There are some kinds of meat and even of vegetables that benefit from being grown in a hospitable environment and then sent, no matter how many carbon miles they might seem to consume, a thousand miles away. We're better off, strictly from an environmental point of view, eating lamb that was grown in New Zealand than we are eating lamb that was grown in the relatively inhospitable reaches of, say, Maine. I think those are good arguments, and there's a lot in them. Here's the place I think people can go off the rails on both sides of those arguments, and that is a simple, old-fashioned philosophical distinction gets missed, the difference between facts and values. It's one of the most important distinctions I think that we can make. We have a lot of facts on hand, and a lot of those are conflicting facts, about the rights and wrongs of sustainable and unsustainable agriculture in our time. It's perfectly true that our system is hugely energy wasteful, tends to drive us towards turning everything, so to speak, into corn syrup and so on. That's true. It's also true that we are feeding now more people than we have ever fed before and that the wrongs of, say, genetically modified organisms, the fear of those things seems largely hysterical, and the realities of mass farming are ones that also go hand in hand with the end of mass famine. The point I'd make is, is that the values that we feel don't depend on those facts. The values may be tested by those facts, but the values that we bring to the table are much more complicated than simply, this is green and this is not. The feelings that we bring to the table are exactly a complicated compound of the ethical, the aesthetic, and the particular. If I want to go every week to the green market in Union Square to shop, it's partly because I think it's good for New York State. It's partly because I think it's good for the farmers of New York State. It's partly because I think it's good for Manhattan to have a green market. But it's mostly because I like to put a face on my food. I like my kids to know who the farmer was who grew their apples. And I like the farmer to know the face of the pig 
that supplies my bacon. It's not primarily about being in a economically virtuous relationship to the world. It's about being in an ethically virtuous relationship to other people. That's why I think we fetishize and obsess about the artisanal. If our beer could taste exactly the same if it were made in, shall we say, St. Louis instead of in Brooklyn, I still think we might run to the artisanal exactly because its effect on us isn't primarily economic and it isn't primarily one of simple platitudinous virtue. It's one that involves our engagement as fully human beings with other human beings. We like to know where our food comes from, not because we're frightened of what it might contain, but because we like to be connected with those who made it. I'd add one other thing, though. Remember the 60s? I know you do. Mm -hmm. By 1980, we were supposed to run out of oil and food. Mm -hmm. The United Nations did studies. There were books. It was a crisis. It's pretty hard to look at the future and actually make an accurate prediction because all of our predictions have gone wrong. I think your point is excellent. It's about values. It's not about facts. Exactly so. But what that suggests is, again, that what endure are the values we bring to the world, not the facts that the world necessarily brings to us. And I think we're wiser and more modest if we root our love for the very things that the green, sustainable, and slow movements celebrate, our love for the local, our love for the artisanal, our love for the handmade, our love for the heirloom, if we root those things in an ethical picture rather than in trying to terrify people with hypothetical facts. Adam, values over facts, I just can't argue. I'm going to have to actually go think about this. <laughs> once, <laughs> once again, you've confounded me. Adam Gopnik, thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break... Fuchsia Dunlop visits Milk Street and teaches me how to use a Chinese cleaver and also to talk about her new book, Land of Fish and Rice, Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand, a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. 
They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Fuchsia Dunlop is the author of Every Grain of Rice, Simple Chinese Home Cooking. She was a guest at Milk Street as part of our live Milk Street sessions when we open our doors and invite some of our favorite food folks. This week, Fuchsia taught me how to use a Chinese cleaver, and she also talked about her latest book, The Land of Fish and Rice. Here's Fuchsia. You ready for this? The Daily Mail uh, in your own town wrote the following about Chinese food, said... Chinese food is far and away the dodgiest in the world, created by a nation which eats bats, snakes, monkeys, birds' nests, sharks' fins, ducks' tongues, and chickens' feet. Would you like to respond to the Daily Mail? Yeah, d- definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's sort of typical of Western disparaging views of Chinese food through the ages. And um, if you look at Western observers of China, they've always either been amazed by the food or they've thought that the Chinese eat lots of weird and disgusting, incomprehensible things. And um, I think it's based on a, a sort of great misconception. With There's this idea that um, China was a very poor country and people were desperate, there were famines, and so they ate anything. And I think this underlies a lot of Western thinking in, you know, in the past, really, but about Chinese food. Um, but it's really important to recognize that while China does have a poverty cuisine, amazing resources in times of famine, people who know every plant, every wild plant you could rely on if you had to, it's also a highly sophisticated gastronomical culture. And it's people at the top of Chinese gastronomy, who was seeking out exotic tastes and textures, thrill of variety, you know, exotic creatures, you know, exciting ingredients, and that's part of it. And the other thing is that I think there's a real Western blind spot in texture. 
because you know the, the, the range of textures that are appreciated in Western gastronomy is very narrow, so crispness maybe, tenderness. But in China, there's a whole kind of um, lot of textures. Like, you know, I was talking earlier about the slimy water plant. Sliminess sounds ghastly in English. Slitheriness, gristliness. All these words sound disgusting in English, and people think, but these textures are highly enjoyed in China, and that's why Chinese people will enjoy eating ingredients like, in Sichuan, goose intestines, totally flavorless, but they've got a delightful texture. The Chinese really love the grapple factor. It's an extra dimension of gastronomy. You know, eating a chicken's foot is the, the part of the fun is disentangling all these little bones with your tongue and teeth. Westerners often don't understand why you, you know, why would you eat some, a chicken's foot? There's no meat on it. It's just a, a bit of rubbishy offal. Why would you eat a duck's tongue? Well, actually, because it's a great delight if you can start appreciating texture. And also because of the intellectual appreciation of food. In the past, if you could have a plateful of boned goose feet, you were really rich. Because how many geese would it take? This is before freezing and so on. So there's a sort of feeling of privilege. So I think we need to change, you know, just ch Chinese cuisine deserves respect and serious consideration as a very thoughtful and sophisticated gastronomic culture. And it's not the, the Chinese eating everything. Yeah, by Western standards, they do in many parts of China. But it's like, it's more interesting than that. So, okay, let's flip the table. So from the Chinese point of view to traditional English food, they probably don't have too many good things to say about that from their perspective. No, no. In fact, it's quite sad because, um, well, not just English food, but um, Chinese people, in my experience, often come out with sweeping generalizations about Western food. So the typical one is xi tan hen jian dan hen dan diao. It's very simple and monotonous. And it's like, it sounds ridiculous. You know, how can someone say that the whole food of the Western world is simple and monotonous? And one young chef at my cooking school said he didn't like Western food. And I said, well, what Western food have you had in Chengdu in 1994? There wasn't any. And he said, oh, I had KFC once and it was disgusting. But it's certainly true that um, it, it's very hard to match the, the variety of even a fairly middle-ranking middle-brow Chinese meal when you have so many dishes and textures and ingredients. And um, so a, a typical Western meal, unless you're going to, you know, the French Laundry or someplace where they've got, you know, highly complex and sophisticated things, it is going to seem more simple and more monotonous than a lot of Chinese food. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do have a question, which is that Chinese cooking, the way you describe it, has lots of levels and layers. You have the very top and then you, you go down. Very sophisticated methods, just basic home cooking and lots of layers and levels in between. And American cooking doesn't really have that. Why do you think Chinese cooking has all these different layers and levels of sophistication versus American cooking or Northern European cooking really doesn't? Yeah, there's also there's a very interesting book by an anthropologist Jack Goody called Cook, uh, what's it called Cooking Cuisine and Class or something, and looking at how the more complex and stratified a society is, often the more complex the cuisine is. And in China, you had many layers of sort of bureaucracy and different categorizations, and you had lots of different social classes, and that creates a complex cuisine. Partly, there's also the thing that in China it's so regionally diverse, and China 
find I always say it's more of a continent than a country. And the difference in terrain, agriculture, produce, language. I mean, if you, you can have dinner in Xi'an in the north of China and the next day fly to Guangzhou in the south and have dinner. And it's like you're in two different culinary worlds. Do you think that the rarity of an ingredient like shark fin soup, for, for example, is it's, it's the rarity of the ingredient that makes the dish or if it wasn't rare, it would still be a great dish? Um, it's a mixture. So with shark's fin, of course, there is the textural thing going on. That's why you would eat some tasteless cartilage that has been purged of all flavor and then served in a lovely soup. So there is a sort of gastronomic reason for enjoying it. But um, certainly it's the fact that it was a rare imported ingredient, very, very expensive, you know, prized since the Ming Dynasty. So it's the cachet. It's like cracking open a really old bottle of Bordeaux or something like that. Things like shark's fins are, are often used to... Um, to give status to a meal. Um, one, one friend of mine, in, a, a food editor in China, said that, of course, a pig's foot is just as delicious as a bear's paw, but people just want to eat the food that emperors had. A lot of people have written about going into a Chinese restaurant, let's say in London, and there are two menus. There's the menu for me, and then there's the menu for you. Is that actually true? Or is there a separate menu for people who actually understand the cuisine? and I'm never going to get that food, uh, and you would have a very different choice of menu items. When I started reviewing Chinese restaurants in London, so that's you know about 20 years ago now, yes, but it wasn't really that they were secret. It's just that on the Chinese language menu, they had dishes that they didn't think Westerners would like which, broadly speaking, was probably true for most of them. You know, most Westerners at that time wanted to go and eat sweet and sour pork and crispy duck with pancakes, you know, and not a slow-cooked pork belly with taro. But I think also it's not really... You know, people often think that it's a sort of secret and it's a conspiracy to keep dishes away. But I think it's just from talking to lots and lots of waiters in Chinese restaurants over the years, it was just sort of, you know... And I've seen this of, um, you know, Western customers going into a Chinese restaurant, ordering something, and then not liking it because it had bones in or because it was slithery. And the waiting staff not having very good English skills and not really being able to explain it and being treated appallingly. And so I think that, you know, a lot of Chinese restaurants just wanted to avoid the hassle. But, I mean, even in China, so I lead these food tours of China... And so I go into a restaurant and I order in fluent Mandarin, knowledgeably, a good Chinese meal. And so many times the waiter will say to me, oh, no, 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 they're not going to eat that. They won't like that. You can't possibly order that. Why don't you have the gongbao chicken? And I have to insist and say, we're not normal foreigners. We're going to eat everything. And so, and then we do, and then they're surprised. So, okay, it's, it's Tuesday night. In Chengdu, and it's it's five thirty, and you you have a limited amount of time to put dinner on the table, right? So, how would you cook at home on a Tuesday night uh, in Canton or Sichuan? Well, um, what, what do you do? You put the rice on. The rice is the background to the meal, and that's going to fill you up. And then you see what food you have. And whereas, say, a Western person making a stir fry supper will just put everything in the wok together or you might make a stew or a salad in which everything goes together. A more Chinese approach would be to look in the fridge and say, oh, well, you know, I've got a little bit of cooked pork and um, some green peppers, and then 
I've got one tomato and a couple of eggs and I've got some greens and to cook them separately and to make three little dishes which are all very fast and um, which sort of, so like you can do scrambled eggs with tomatoes, very easy and delicious, sort of stalk up a dish, a bit of greens and just stir fry them. You might do them just with a little garlic or just with salt and oil um, or you might just put them in a bit of stock soup or something. And, um, and then if I had a bit of cooked pork, I would make a Sichuanese twice-cooked pork, a bit of chili bean paste, and then something fresh like, you know, some green peppers. And you can do that in 45 minutes, easy, you know? And it's just sort of, you know, cutting something up quickly, not complicated, but just trying to have different flavors. So, like, if I have a green vegetable, I might do it with a bit of garlic. I might do it with garlic and ginger. I might do it with some fermented black beans and chili, you know, they're just very easy. And the other thing is, if you've got food that's a bit bland, I, I always have a jar in the fridge of fermented tofu or some lao gan ma, this black bean chili sauce. And then you can put a little dish, like a dipping dish, with a bit of your strongly flavoured fermented tofu or some black bean sauce. And then you can use your chopsticks and use that to season your rice, you know, or take some pickles from the pickle jar. So it's sort of trying to make, I think even in a very simple meal, often making a very nice little variety. So I'm going to ask you the question I always get when I travel. So it's now I'm turning my, the table on you. You're here in Boston. You've never been to Boston before. What is it that you can't wait to eat in Boston? Well, I think things like, you know, clam chowder is the thing. I mean, I don't really know about New England food, but I'm always very keen to eat whatever is very local. So clam chowder is something that I, I sort of know of but probably haven't had very good versions and I would expect to be able to have a very good version in Boston, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's Mill Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is about how to store and grate ginger. You know, here at Mill Street, we use a lot of ginger. We love it in soups, with stews, braised meats, vinaigrettes, even sauces. It adds a lot of flavor, and it's very easy to work with. Now, you can keep it in the fridge, in the produce drawer, for two or even three weeks, but we like to keep ours in the freezer. We use a plastic zip close bag. It'll last for months. Now, one other tip, we like to grate our ginger. Grating ginger means it diffuses very quickly into whatever you're cooking, and it's very easy to work with. If you grate frozen ginger, it's easier to grate, but one word of caution, you need to use about twice as much by volume of grated frozen ginger because it tends to be fluffier and airier. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can also download each week's recipe. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.